Acts 17, and also we'll look at page 938, Acts 17. <clears throat> and then we'll also look at page 938 in the back of your hymnals. I'm only going to read the first section for tonight, which is section 3, and then we'll look at section 4 as the message continues. First, let's look at God's holy word. Uh, This is Acts 17, starting at verse 10. Hear God's holy word. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Uh, And then we'll look at uh, section 3 of chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. This is page 938, section 3. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred, Therefore, we are not, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for uh, this confession that was written by uh, many godly uh, pastors and uh, teachers of pastors. We pray, O Father, that you would bless this, your word, as we study, that we would have a greater appreciation for the work of your church, and especially a greater appreciation as your holy word, as the final and ultimate authority for all faith and practice. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Before we start, we might want to look and have a little bit of of review about what is a synod or what is a council. Um, the words come from a similar origin, of, um, but typically synods might be understood as a more of a local meeting of the church. You could consider maybe a synod as being something more like the presbytery. When I go to presbytery in Florida, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the synod there, you could say, but we call it a presbytery. But then when the General Assembly meets, that's the, the entire Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that maybe might be elevated more to the level of a council. Now, uh, again, when we look at different things of history, we look at uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts uh, 15. We looked at that recently in uh, the Jerusalem Council. Um, they made a judgment. Some theologians call that the Jerusalem Council, some call it the Jerusalem Senate. In God's mind, we'll find out, hey, uh, when we go to the being glory, Lord, was that more of a council or a synod? We'll, we'll find out later. 
as far as we know, some people call it one or the other. But in section three, this is a very important section that talks about the limits of church councils or the limits of synods, both the limits of councils and synods. It says again, all synods or councils since the apostles' time, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Think of this. You have the best book you've ever picked up. Maybe it's, um, let's say, uh, The Reformed Pastor is one good book that is uh, a fabulous book to guide the ministry for Reformed Pastors. That book is a help, but it is not an authoritative rule of faith and practice like this Holy Bible is. The same thing goes with the confessions and catechisms and all of the writings of the, of the, uh, the Westminster Assembly. Those are helps, but they're not elevated to the level of the, the ultimate rule of faith and practice. They're helps toward our faith and practice. I started this message by looking at Acts 17, 10 and following because this passage gives us the absolute rule of faith and practice, which is Holy Scripture, God's Holy Word. The Berean Jews who worshipped the Lord were more faithful than those Jews in Thessalonica. Why? They were more noble-minded, they were more faithful, because it says here they received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. It was more commendable for believers not to just take Paul's word for it or Silas's word for it, but to examine even the words of the Holy Apostle to make sure that it lined up with what Scripture said. And at the time, the Scripture that they were looking at was the, the, old, the writings of the Old Testament, but um, at this point, we, it's very unlikely that we had a, um, a lot of other epistles yet um, later on, we do have another passage here. Uh, Paul also wrote 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 Now, when this passage was written, there were a lot more epistles out um, and scattered among the church, so there were more New Testament scripture. But in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, it says here, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, what does it mean there when we look at the word teaching here? The same Greek word that is translated as teaching is also translated as doctrine. It's translated as either teaching or doctrine. So whenever you read that in the Bible, teaching is doctrine and doctrine is teaching. They, those words are to be used interchangeably. Okay, um, The synods or councils often produce documents. And those documents, um, I think in the Roman Catholic Church, a synod or council would produce canon. Of, of, they would call it canon, but we would call it creeds, catechisms, confessions for the purpose of teaching doctrine. That's why we get those catechisms, confessions, and creeds. It's for teaching doctrine. 
It's to be a help or a guide for our faith. Now, when we read it in this section, a rule of faith, it means what we're to believe. And it says, or practice, what we are, how we are to live. Okay? Faith, what we believe. Practice, how we are to live. The OPC Presbyteries and the General Assembly both endeavor to have meetings that are guided by Holy Scripture. And yes, there are disagreements that come up, but how do they handle those disagreements? They handle them by looking at Holy Scripture. Um, we call it deliberation, or you, can, you might want to call it debate. They debate the issue according to Holy Scripture. Now, individual churches and even entire denominations have compromised on many matters because they did not apply the fence of Holy Scripture in making decisions for the church. They did not apply the fence of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and following in the decisions they made. For instance, they used man's wisdom and said, well, we know that the Scripture says that to be ordained to holy office, especially that of elder or deacon, it says to be a, a man of no more than one wife. Well, how do you get women ordination? You can't get it by looking at Scripture. Obviously, someone has transgressed 2 Timothy 3, 16 and following. It's not been their God in their deliberations, and they used their own imaginations to come up with what they thought was the case. By the way, um, I, I saw a very uh, interesting argument uh, regarding the word deaconess. Whenever you see that word in the New Testament... Some were deaconesses. They were considered that by the apostles. But they were not ordained to office. That was a compliment, a word of showing that they are a servant, a great servant in the church, but not an ordained individual because the requirements for ordination as deacon required that you had to be a man of no more than one wife. Uh, moving on. A careful reading of section 3 calls us to test the words of, yes, even the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Standards. It's not just for the church to test it, but I think we should all be like the Bereans and test whether those creeds err or not or whether they're faithful to Scripture or not. Test them to see if they are true you'll find that they are well-tested and they're faithful because they have been tried and true many for a great long time. Now, as far as our Westminster Confession of Faith, I don't know if not, maybe the young people are not aware of this or maybe those who are visitors are not aware of this, but the American Presbyterians made modifications to the Westminster Standards and in particular... They made modifications to this chapter, chapter 31. An entire section was removed. I'm not going to read you the entire section that was removed, but here's, what a, here's a portion of what it said. Magistrates, that means rulers, uh, secular rulers, may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion. In other words, a church-wide council or synod of some sort, maybe, depending if it's regional or national. Now, 
Do you, do you trust President Biden to have the wisdom in calling a group of ministers together to make certain judgments or recommendations for behalf of the nation? Most Bible-believing Christians would not choose or him to be the wisest person to recommend or to pick fit persons to consult and advice about matters of religion. It's because of arguments like this that the American Presbyterian said this section has to go. Now, the precedent uh, for that was uh, when Constantine uh, had uh, made a recommendation of calling together a council. But the OPC has deleted that because it's not, it can't be really backed up by uh, Scripture. Now, the OPC General Assembly has also worked on and is currently right now working on modifying the Westminster um, standards to make it more in modern English. Now, um, there are, there's a lot of outdated language in the confessions and the catechisms. And um, here's the argument that I, I've heard before way back in, well, it wasn't that far back, but I heard in seminary, was that if you go back to chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says that the Word of God is really primarily authoritative as is given in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament. That's the ultimate authority, really. But we have to have the Word of God translated in the vulgar or the common languages. Now, if the argument is that the Holy Scriptures need to be in the common languages well understood by the people, wouldn't you want your doctrinal standard of teaching to be in the common language of the people as well? And I think the argument stands that you should desire to have these confessions in a, in a more accessible, I'm not talking about dumb it down in any way whatsoever, but just to use less of the outdated, archaic language that is no longer really current in, in anyone's speech whatsoever. And that is currently being done. Uh, actually, uh, Pastor uh, Warren Bennett in Natchitoches actually, uh, for a time, had served for a brief while on, on that committee. I don't, I'm not sure if he's still on it or not. Um, section 4 goes on to say this. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with affairs which concern the commonwealth, that is the, the local governments or the, the federal government, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice, or satisfaction of conscience, if they thereunto are required by the civil magistrate. Okay. Now, here's one example of a humble petition that the OPC wrote and uh, there are more, but I'm only going to give you one. Um, it's actually not that, hard, not that easy to find these on the website. But uh, in June of 1993, the GA of the OPC wrote a letter to President Clinton. It's considered a humble petition given to uh, President Clinton. The 60th General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church humbly petitions the President of the United States of America to stand against the sin of homosexual activity. We support this petition with the following considerations. Based on the Word of God 
and his creation law, homosexuality, including, including bisexuality and lesbianism, violates God's non-negotiable moral standard and therefore is sin. That's only the introductory statements. This is a, a long, much longer document than this. This is just the, the summary of what this letter was. So that this humble petition came about because the church became convicted. They, they could not help but speak against some of the sins that they saw in the nation. Uh, I'm surprised uh, that this was even before the time when we found publications found in public libraries. This is before the time where it was pushed in the, in the public schools. And then even after this petition was given, we were having all of that push in, in the public spheres um, regarding uh, encouraging young people to be confused about their gender and, and things of that like. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if another petition came about later uh, concerning um, some of this uh, gender confusion uh, matter. Again, the use of such petitions is in accordance with Section 4 above. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith's mandate that the church be allowed to make such petitions to the secular government or, in extraordinary cases, to advise or other communication between government and the church for satisfaction of conscience, those sorts of things does away with this absolute notion that some have that there's to be this incredibly separate separation between church and state, as if there's this 100-foot wall between the church and the, and the state, and then the two never have any interaction whatsoever. Uh, a couple of passages I want us to look at. Uh, one is there in your outline. It says in Isaiah 49:23, a prophecy is that kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. In other words, there's a, a particular passage here where the kings were and the princes were to help and to facilitate um, the work of the church in some degree. Acts, I'm not Acts, we'll look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Now, to me, if someone says it is an absolute division between church and state, the state can act in any way they want without any repercussions, without having to answer to God because they are a totally 100% secular entity and as if they need to live in that sort of realm where they could be 100% secular and atheist. Well, let's look at Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You could translate against his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. That's what government wants to do. They want to be totally secular. They want to cast off any notion of answering to God whatsoever. But it goes on. He who sits 
in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and they shall, and you shall scatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. If I was a ruler, a governor, or a president, this would be something that, a passage that would be very fearful for me if I was trying to oppose the blessed Lord Jesus, the holy anointed Son of God. But rather, they are called, even the kings, even the rulers of the nations, to worship the blessed Lord Jesus, the anointed Son of God. And we should do so likewise. And again, um, if you want more information about these humble petitions, you go to the OPC website and you can look up and, and do some, some looking. And there's some interesting stuff about what the OPC has communicated in, uh, regarding giving petitions to the, uh, the government regarding some matters. Uh, let's pray together. We thank you, O Father, that you have called your Son, the blessed Lord Jesus, to be King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that he is also our Lord and our Savior, our only hope in this, in this world and our only hope in the life to come, the only way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you for giving us your blessed Son, we do pray that you would continue to uphold and give wisdom to the councils and to the synods, to the presbyteries and the general assemblies of our denomination. We pray that you would give wisdom and a steadfast spirit that all deliberations and, and debates and writings and proclamations would always seek to be faithful to your Holy Scripture. But first and foremost, our Lord, help us to stand fast and stand firm on that ultimate final authority, your holy word in all matters. Help, in, help us in this, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's, uh, let's look at 271. Blessed Jesus, at your word we are all gathered to hear you. Let's stand and sing. 